This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to our end of 2018 Out of the Blue podcast. I'm Nithin Seem, and I'm very happy, actually, today to be uh, joined by our other podcast editors, Dr. Trish Critic and Dr. John Fleetham. Today, the three of us will discuss some of the topics and articles that we found most interesting from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care in the year 2018. So, John, I'd like to start by asking you a question. You moderate all of those podcasts, and I get to ask you about uh, your thoughts about some of them. So, you know, I think several of the things we'll talk about today relate to phenotyping. And I, I thought your discussion with Scott Sands and David Rappaport about the paper from Dr. Sands' group uh, regarding phenotyping pharyngeal pathophysiology using polysomnography in patients with obstructive sleep apnea was very interesting. Uh, and I'd ask you just to start to explain to our listeners why it will be important to, to phenotype patients um, and what are different approaches rather than just the apnea hypopnea index uh, to phenotype? So, yeah. Thanks, Nitin. Um, there's a general misperception that patients with obstructive sleep apnea are one homogenous group who present with the same symptoms, have the same pathogenesis, and you just slap them on CPAP. And it's been shown really with recent cluster analysis uh, that clinically, uh, approximately 40% of patients present with daytime sleepiness, 30% present with recurrent nocturnal awakening, and 30% are asymptomatic. So that's one way in terms of phenotyping. Similarly, women present with different symptoms than men, and children present with different symptoms than adults. Then in terms of pathogenesis, it used to be thought that the, the normal loss of upper airway tone during sleep in association with upper airway narrowing was the sole cause of obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, but it's not uncommon to see patients with severe obstructive sleep apnea who have no upper airway narrowing. So over the last 10 years, the group in Boston have developed really quite sophisticated techniques to assess the different causes of obstructive sleep apnea. And they characterize these as changes in upper airway collapsibility, changes in upper airway muscle compensation, different loop game, and altered arousal threshold. Well, thank you for, for explaining that. And, and um, actually, I think it as I mentioned before, I think it makes perfect sense that, you know, you put someone through a polysomnography and the, the, the data we pay attention to is just the AHI. So um, I thought your discussion really hit the point that, you know, doing doing better than that and, 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 and figuring out those phenotypes in a much more thoughtful way is really the next step, especially as you contrast what the value is of a of a polysomnogra- uh, polysomnogram in the lab versus something you, you would do in in-home testing. So, you know, I'd follow up by asking you about um, how the, the detailed analysis of the PST described in that study by Dr. Sands' group. How did they assess pharyngeal phenotypes? And what do you think about that being a predictor of response to different treatments, not just uh, CPAP? So the physiological phenotyping developed by the Boston group is, is really pretty sophisticated. You, you have to have polysomnography, but the, it's got to be performed with the patient sleeping with a pneumotech a sealed or a nasal pharyngeal mask, uh, and an intraesophageal diaphragmatic EMG. So it's really not ready for prime time, clearly not feasible to do with routine polysomnography. What was good about this study is it, uh, what they showed was that patients' phenotype 
can be identified from all the existing information that's present in the routine polysomnographic uh, or in the usual signals. And you don't need calibrated airflow and you don't need specialized interventions. Now, as I mentioned, it's thought that sort of CPAP is the primary treatment, but there are a variety of other treatments for obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, there are oral appliances, there's upper airway surgery, the supplemental oxygen, and actually a couple of new novel medications coming online uh, that help in terms of upper airway stimulation. So this type of analysis discussed in the podcast is, is quite new, but um, but last year, uh, you may remember, we did a, I did a, broad, uh, a podcast with Brad Edwards, uh, discussed another paper in which, uh, with the same technology, patients who had mild anatomic compromise and a lower loop gain um, achieved a better response in terms of treatment with an oral plants. And then the Boston group have come out with a, a series of papers in the last two years, uh, most of them in the Blue Journal. Uh, they've shown that patients do better with upper airway surgery if they have an elevated loop gain, and patients with a dominant ventilatory drive are good patients for supplemental oxygen. So there's increasing evidence that you can um, you know, identify who's going to respond to the different treatments. So um, it's you know, polysomnography, you, you record eight hours of data, 12 channels, and then you know, it's the ultimate data reduction in terms of you reduce it down to one number, the, the apnea hypopnea index. And really the take-home message from uh, this study and this podcast is uh, there's a lot more information in a polysomnogram apart from the apnea hypopnea index that can help guide treatment in the future. You know, I think that's an interesting way to link into the podcast I was going to ask Nitin about because Nitin, I enjoyed listening to the podcast that you did with Gaetan Desley and Jerry Kreiner about endobronchial valves. And similarly, I think they looked at not all COPD patients are the same, and there might be certain cohorts of patients with bad COPD who would more more benefit from uh, using an endobronchial valve. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about that discussion and, and which of those those patients would benefit from endobronchial valves and how they looked at those patients in the study that, that Jerry published. Yeah, thanks, Trish. And I think your point is right. I think, you know, as we're talking about different studies in pulmonary critical care and sleep, a lot of these themes of phenotyping people better. Um, and, you know, I've taken care, I'm sure you have as well, patients in clinic who have bad emphysema with hyperinflation. Those are the sort of patients, you you know, you stack uh, multiple bronchodilator on top of and they have persistent dyspnea and they're just not responding. You know, those are the group that they did the studies looking at, you know, lung volume reduction surgery. And that's actually underutilized. Many patients don't want it or either are, or aren't candidates for lung volume reduction surgery. And so the, the point, the valves have been uh, a really interesting um, potential therapy for some time now because they're trying to do what the lung volume reduction surgery does, but with less morbidity and mortality. Basically, um, a self-expanding one-way valve that prevents the airflow into the target area while allowing trapped air to escape. So yeah, they've been looking at patients with hyperinflation. Um, and so when I spoke uh, to, to Dr. Desley and Dr. Kreiner about um, the study that, that Dr. Kreiner led that was Liberate. So this was looking at the, the patients they looked at in this study. It was a 24-center trial, almost 200 patients. Their, the criteria were ex-smokers, and they had heterogeneous emphysema um, with an FEV1 
that was 15 to 45% of predicted. So patients weren't in great shape. They had to have air trapping by PFTs. They had to have a six minute walk distance that was low 100 to 500 meters. And they had an absence of collateral ventilation. So there's been been several studies about figuring out the right group of patients that this might benefit. And so the the patients who have an absence of collateral ventilation are, are the group that they've found most likely to respond to these endobronchial valves. And they had a way to assess that that they used for that study, right? Yeah. And so that gets a little more confusing. There's a proprietary system. That I think there are different companies that do the valves. This was the Zephyr and the bronchial valve. And they basically, they have a system, they connect it to a balloon catheter and it includes the target lobe to measure uh, pressure and flow. And in that way, they can measure whether there is a presence or absence of collateral ventilation. And so they're really looking for the patients who had an absence of ventilation. So overall, what is the evidence to date that these valves actually improve outcome in patients with heter- heterogeneous emphysema. Yeah, I mean, I think with that's been the Blue Journal's published a couple of articles that are the first multi-center trials. There have been several single-center trials, and there have been studies in Lancet and the New England Journal showing benefits of valves. Um, the 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 couple of studies from the from the Blue Journal that I highlight was. I mentioned Liberate was the more recent podcast. Before that, there was the Transform study, and that was the first multicenter RCT of the Zephyr endobronchial valve. It was published in the Blue Journal in December 2017. They had similar entry criteria like Liberate. I mentioned the patients with a severe FEV1 decrease, a decrease in uh, walk distance, and patients who um, you know were ex-smokers. They didn't follow them up. They didn't have as long a follow-up. In, in that study. It, um, but they had similar findings in, in Transform. More patients in the VAL group had significant improvement. Their primary endpoint was post-bronchodilator FEV1 at three months, a significant improvement in that. And many more people who got the endobronchial valves compared to standard of care or bronchodilators had that improvement. Um, but what was really interesting is, you know, all the, sometimes you look at studies and there's a mix of all the, of the, the signals between the primary and the secondary endpoints. You know, everything was improved with valves at six, mo- at six months would transform. They measured quality of life by the St. George's questionnaire that was improved with valves. Exercise tolerance, a six minute walk distance was much further with valves. Um, and so they followed, that was followed up by Dr. Kreiner's study, Liberate, and patients were followed over t- 12 months. And um, valve patients, again, had similar findings, improvements in lung function, exercise tolerance, and quality of life, but not just at three and six months, but sustained at 12 months after um, uh, randomization. Um, I think that's the one thing you worry about, um, and it's unsurprisingly, the most comp- complication in this group is pneumothorax. Mm-hmm. And so that occurred in 26.6% of the valve uh, group patients in, in the Liberate study. But it tends to occur within the first couple of days, so they keep them in the hospital, and that wasn't associated with uh, a risk of death. So um, the deaths that occurred in, in, that, in the valve group were later. So the, actually, the FDA approved that, that Zephyr valve system in patients with emphysema and hyperinflation in regions of, of little or no collateral ventilation um, uh, in the middle of this year. So I think that that was a, a nice illustration of a couple of papers looking at a phenotype, a group of patients that are really hard to treat, um, who, uh, who hopefully will get benefit from, uh, from valves. So your conversations convinced you that this is a good thing? You know, I, I will admit I have no personal experience uh, with that. But the data, like I said, the, there was like uh, 
many more patients had a 15% increase in FEV1. The walk distance was much higher. And, you know, taking care of those patients in clinic, you know, you just, you try, uh, you know, long-acting bronchodilators, different mechanisms of action, uh, you know, spend a lot of time with inhaler techniques and so forth. And they, they you feel so frustrated for the poor patients who are miserable getting dyspnea, walking um, a, a few meters, having a miserable quality of life. So I think this is a group that um, that you really need to see um, if you can have a, a, a new therapy. And th- this makes sense. And it'll be interesting to see as, as now we have FDA approval and it's approved in some countries in Europe to see if, if that, that, that uh, clinical trial data matches what we see in practice. Fair enough. I just have to correct one thing. I no longer see any patients in outpatient pulmonary clinics, so I do not share your challenge of having to care for these patients. That That's your disclosure for the podcast? That is my disclosure. <laughs> so, Trish, uh, I listened to one of your podcasts, and you spoke with Mitchell Levy about mandated public reporting for sepsis in New York. It sounded like he was pretty optimistic about the benefits of public reporting. Uh, what was your sense of how he thought this would benefit patients if it was more broadly implemented? Yeah, I had a really interesting conversation with um, Mitchell Levy about this. And uh, as I think you guys both know and many listeners know, he's been a part of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign guideline since the beginning of Surviving Sepsis. So this is a subject that he is A, very versed on and B, very committed to. So Uh, The paper that we talked about was a publication of an analysis of the reporting in New York State, which is now mandated for all hospitals, about compliance with their sepsis bundles, which are slightly different than the CMS bundles, but um, close to them. And what they reported was that 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 mandate increased compliance with sepsis bundles and that the risk-adjusted mortality associated with sepsis fell or was lower with the during the initiatives and the places that did more of the bundles did better in terms of mortality. Um, my sense in talking to Mitchell was that, number one, he believes in using a sepsis bundle. I think he has done a lot of work on it. He has been part of multiple studies looking at the implementation of the of these bundles. And he thinks that in the vast majority of patients with sepsis that we're benefiting them by um, implementing basically, you know, early fluid resuscitation, cultures and antibiotics, following lactate, and using vasopressors as needed to support the blood pressure. And I think he his take on this paper and the reason that he thought it would benefit uh, folks more is that there's been a long-standing push to say these are things that are good for patients with sepsis, and yet we know that a lot of these things don't happen on a regular basis for patients who are presenting with sepsis, either in an ED or in, an, in an acute care unit. And that by asking hospitals to report or mandating them to report, more people engaged with using these bundles and these interventions that improve outcomes in sepsis. And this was nice because it supported the fact that if that happens, that that has an impact on mortality. So I think he was very optimistic about the kind of bigger picture implications of this. And I and I think this paper was really interesting because New York mandated uh, reporting started before CMS said all hospitals have to report. It's slightly different in terms of reporting in New York. Every, all patients with sepsis have to be reported. For CMS, a small cohort of patients have to be reported, a random sampling. Um, and the 
metrics in the bundles are slightly different, but the 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 concept is is similar. And so this started before CMS and overlapped actually with the CMS rollout. And I think if maybe Mitch, Mitchell's biggest take home was this supports using CMS CMS's guidelines and CMS's mandated reporting because it has impacts on patient outcomes. So what was his take on the reasons why there's uh, so much resistance to the sepsis bundle? Yeah, so I thought that was actually the most interesting part of our conversation. Um, because I, I brought up with him, it was while there was um, increasing compliance with the bundles, there was better compliance with the three-hour bundle. So the three-hour bundle included antibiotics within three hours of the patient being identified, drawing blood cultures before giving the antibiotics, and measuring a lactate within three hours. That's that's the first bundle. And that bundle was more adhered to and had progressive adoption over time. The six-hour bundle it was for patients who were hypotensive or had a high lactate, that they got the the equivalent in CMS of 30 mLs per kilo bolus, they, they got vasopressors for refractory hypotension, and that their lactate was remeasured. And this was only about 50% compliance at the beginning and only drifted up a little bit. And what got significantly better in the, the adoption of the six-hour bundle was the measuring serial lactates, but the resuscitation part of it didn't get that much better over time. So we talked about that a little bit. And um, it was clear to me that that is a point, point of frustration for Mitchell that a lot of intensivists, I may include myself in this uh, at various points in time, have argued against a blanket uh, prescription of 30 mLs per kilo bolus for every patient with sepsis. And the argument is that um, not every patient needs that much volume. And for some patients, giving them that much volume is going to be detrimental, particularly patients with cardiomyopathy or patients with end-stage renal disease is what is usually argued. And I think his point, which he made a couple times, is that's true. And I think he agrees there's a small cohort of patients for whom that might be too much fluid. But in the vast majority of patients with sepsis and the vast majority of patients presenting most commonly to the ED, um, 80% 80% of the patients that they looked at in the, the paper from New York were all were coming in through the ED, that in nearly all of those patients, it is completely safe to give them 30 mLs per kilo in the setting of sepsis, and that we spend a lot of time debating that small cohort of patients for whom this might not be a good thing, instead of embracing the fact that for almost everybody else, if not everybody else, it is a good thing. So... Uh, I think uh, he didn't say that we're quote unquote overthinking it or thinking about the exceptions too much, but he implied that in our conversation and that um, I think a lot of intensivists are skeptics. There's a lot of uh, skeptics amongst our our peers. And again, I'll throw myself into that pool at times um, that that skepticism is preventing implementation of an intervention that really could help the majority of patients. So, so that, I think was one of the big things that we talked about in terms of not adopting the um, the full bundle. And and I think the focus in his conversations with people about this and what kind of comes through in the data there is that it's mostly around achieving that fluid resuscitation goal 
I don't really understand the vasopressor part of it. And he didn't have any insights into that. And the lactate measurement, serial lactate measurement actually got better. And I suspect that that's because there's protocols that say, if this lab is abnormal, automatically send another lab. So I think it's really around the volume and that people are still hesitant to give volume and probably, you know, his, his take and, and what we talked about probably too hesitant considering the numbers of patients that would fall into the bucket of will benefit from this versus the number of patients who fall into the bucket of this will be a, uh, a detrimental thing to do. Yeah, we don't have similar reporting like this up in Canada. So we watch this with interest. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, now that we have CMS reporting and, and Nathan, you can chime in here as well if you want. I, I There's a lot of energy going towards looking at how we take care of patients with sepsis. And I would argue, and we talked about this a little bit as well in our conversation, that um, on the one hand, it's great to put that much attention on sepsis, which has probably been under-recognized and under-focused upon. But on the other hand, we have limited resources for, for these types of interventions. And I think there are concerns in hospitals in the U.S. that because now it has a dollar amount associated with it for, for hospitals in terms of um, CMS that we're taking resources from one thing to put them towards this. And, and it's not entirely clear it's beneficial. I think Mitchell would cite this paper to say, yes, it is beneficial because we're showing that there's decreased mortality when you, when you engage with these bundles and reporting helps people engage with the bundles. Yeah, I would, um, I would agree with that point. I think that that's the question, right? Are you, are you, um, uh, trying to, you're, you're mandating some specific care and that's it again the skeptic would say um, it, for one disease process and you have fixed resources in a busy emergency room and you're taking away from another and where is the great evidence to support that yeah I think all, all of that is true and and I thought the kind of enjoyment in the conversation was that I take I am a natural skeptic on all of this but it was it was interesting to kind of have, an opportunity to have Mitchell try to justify it to me in a one-on-one conversation, which was, you know, a really uh, a nice discussion. And just one more thing I'd say there, like, and that's helpful. If you, if you tell me as someone, I'm, well, I'm worried I'm going to put this patient CHF or this, you know, uh, end-stage renal patient who makes no urine two liters is going to send them into pulmonary edema. And you say, well, we've looked at this and 80% of the patients, there is no issue there. That helps me um, you know, inform me the next time I'm making that decision. So collecting the data, sharing that data is certainly something that, that helps all of us take care of our patients. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to shift gears completely now <laughs> and ask you, John, about one of the podcasts that you did, which was about an interesting patient, a patient, an interesting paper by Allison Lee and colleagues um, about prenatal household air pollution and its effect on infant lung function with sex-specific effects. And you talked about it um, with her and with uh, John Balms. And I have to admit, this is an area that I know almost nothing about. So I'm curious. I mean, I suspect you learned from this interview uh, and this conversation as well. Um, What's your take on why these studies about the health effects of household pollution are so important? So you're absolutely right. This, I mean, this was out of my comfort zone as well, but uh, it was identified as a paper of interest. 
And one of the, the benefits of being a podcast editor is you, you, you get to read and then discuss topics outside your usual field of interest. So, yeah, this podcast, uh, I think we just did it a couple of weeks ago, but uh, from it, I learned that approximately 3 billion people or 40% of the world's population still cook using open fires or simple stoves, fired by either kerosene, biomass or coal uh, that generates significant household air pollution. Um, the Global Burden of Disease Project attributes COPD and lung cancer to home pollution. Um, and furthermore, in low and, and middle income countries where most women don't smoke tobacco, household air pollution uh, is thought to be the major cause of COPD and lung cancer in women. Um, the World Health Organization estimates that household air pollution causes close to 3 million deaths per year, including half a million deaths in young children, um, secondary to pneumonia. So it was really interesting discussing um, this this paper with Dr. Lee and Dr. Barnes, both clear experts in this, and, and clearly household air pollution uh, has a huge public health impact, um, um, primarily outside North America, that theoretically is, is uh, totally preventable. It's really interesting because I think of when we teach like medical students about COPD, we talk about burning biofuel or biomass in, indoors contributing to COPD, though I don't think I had the same sense of the magnitude of the problem. But this was really interesting because now you were talking about the impact on infant lung function. So what did the study find and, and what's the clinical significance of, of what they found? Well, it was, I mean, it's an impressive study in terms of what they did. So what Dr. Lee and her colleagues did is they went to rural Ghana and they examined the association between prenatal household air pollution and infant lung function and, and pneumonia. Uh, and so as part of a bigger project in Ghana, uh, they identified uh, pregnant women um, who then on four separate occasions went prenatal carbon monoxide monitoring. And then uh, after they delivered the babies, they then, uh, for me as an adult physician, then did pulmonary function <laughs> testing on 30-day-old infants. Uh, you know, I, I, don't ask me to explain that tech, you know, the technology, but you know how you do it to a thirty-year-old. Anyhow, what they found was increased prenatal household air pollution was associated with impaired infant lung function, and especially in girls. And then, furthermore, they found that uh, in the impaired infant lung function, uh, that when they developed that, that then increased the risk for pneumonia in the first year of life. And so the basic thing is understanding the influence of prenatal household air pollution and lung development uh, can identify at-risk popula uh, at populations and develop um, future public health interventions. Uh, and again, uh, this is totally new to me, but there are now randomized controlled trials of using cleaner uh, biomass cook stoves and liquidized petrol gas stoves um, they also discussed a paper from uh, rural Guatemala that suggested that uh, if you reduce exposure to home air pollution uh, through the use of chimney stoves, then that can improve lung function later in childhood. So it was a whole area of, uh, of medicine and respiratory medicine I really never thought of before. Yeah, I, I learned a lot from listening to the podcast. And I find that this only further highlights the kind of growing emphasis that we have on how socioeconomic conditions have such an impact on health, not only for those those people who are exposed in real time, but 
so interestingly for the not yet born children who are in that environment as well. I thought that was fascinating. I mean, it was a very scientific study. I mean, it's the first study where you know, they had objective measurements in terms of uh, carbon monoxide and then objective testings in terms of pulmonary function. Yeah. So I'm going to stray into another area that I don't know much about, which is uh, delirium. Um, and asked Nitin, uh, uh, you did a podcast recently concerning this. Now, it, it, delirium has been a hot topic for critical care, as I understand, in 2018. And uh, one of the articles was an article published by Scrobic and colleagues, which found that dexmentomidine, uh, which I think is also marketed as Presidex, uh, can prevent or uh, delirium in at-risk patients in ICU. What did you think about this study? Yeah, thanks, John, uh, for asking me about it. It was a very interesting study. You know, there's been several important papers about delirium uh, in 2018 uh, that, were, that were published in, in, in our highest impact journals. This study was a double-blinded uh, double placebo-controlled trial. It was only in two centers, but there were 100 critically ill adults who were receiving sedatives and who did not have delirium, so they screened them initially. And they randomized them to receive nocturnal uh, IV dexmedetomidine, and they did it from a, it was 9.30 at night till 6.15 in the morning, or placebo until ICU discharge on top of whatever else they were receiving for sedatives. So they had a very detailed protocol of how to do this. And this was a group of patients who would be at risk for delirium, you know, 90% uh, or so were on, were receiving mechanical ventilation. And then, you know, they had a process by which um, the the, when they were getting the study drug infusion, either the dexmedetomidine or the placebo, they would have all the other sedatives, but they would leave the opioid doses alone. So it was very, as I said, it was interesting um, how they had to go to all the detail to desi design this. And they used um, a, the intensive care delirium screening checklist to, to assess every day um, for, uh, for del delirium development in these people who did not have it um, when they were randomized. Um, they also, uh, though you're not a delirium expert, John, you are a sleep expert. They they use uh, the leads questionnaire to to evaluate sleep every morning. So this was asking questions as opposed to actually measuring sleep quality. But um, so what they found was interesting that they found that that uh, nocturnal dexmedetomidine reduced the incidence of delirium during the ICU stay, and so that would be the first trial showing such a finding, but they found that that questionnaire, that the patient reported sleep quality was no different. So, you know, it was very interesting, but I think there are obviously several limitations that, that concern you before you generalize and, and use this for all your patients who are at risk for delirium. You know, there were no significant, uh, there were no differences in measured clinical outcomes like days on the ventilator. Um, it took three years to enroll 100 patients because many patients had to be excluded. Um, uh, there was no polysomnography data, which I know it's not easy to collect in the context of study, but just say, you know, did dexmedetomidine being, having a different mechanism of action from different sedatives, you know, improve sleep? And there isn't any long-term follow-up data for how those patients did. So, again, it was a small study, a hundred patients was empowered to measure a lot of these things. So it's interesting, but, but needs, um, further study. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing in sleep into to, into the discussion, and certainly, you know, poor sleep in ICUs uh, um, has been an area of actually significant interest recently. 
But um, now, we're, um, so we, we are we now better informed about medications for for preventing or right, uh, treating uh, delirium in the ICU? Yeah, I think we've we've learned some things in 2018. Obviously, this study in the Blue Journal by Scrobic suggests that prevention of delirium may occur in certain patients with nocturnal dexmedetomidine, but I think a larger RCT is going to need to follow this up with as some of the things I mentioned. um, See relevant measure clinical relevant clinical outcomes and show differences. Look at longer term outcome. Try to figure out if it affects sleep. There are a couple of other papers um, that. There were different findings. There was a study in JAMA, and there was actually a very large study of almost 1,800 critically ill patients who were at risk of delirium, and they looked at prophylactic two milligrams of haloperidol versus placebo. And they were, you know, such a large study, they were able to look at 28-day mortality. And they really found, they found no difference in mortality or any of these other secondary endpoints like delirium incidence, days on the ventilator, and so forth. And then, you know, Tim, Tim Jordan, colleagues with the Mind USA group, just published um, a study in the New England Journal um, looking, they did a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial comparing IV boluses of haloperidol or zeprazidone versus or placebo in patients who had either hypo or hyperactive delirium who were either in acute respiratory failure or shock. They're hoping that obviously either the zeprazidone or the haloperidol would, would decrease the duration of delirium, and they found no difference um, uh, compared to placebo there. So I think that that take-home message, just giving uh, haloperidol for patients um, with delirium, isn't. Uh, there's a couple of studies there that are showing it's not going to uh, improve uh, relevant clinical outcomes. Hey, Nathan. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about the paper you started with? Of course. I, I can't remember if you guys talked about this on the podcast or not, but when I read it and when we talked about it in our journal club and I actually summarized it elsewhere, um, the part that was so weird about that was they, they have the patient sedation that they were on and then either they got the DEX or they got the control and then they gave them a DAS if they were agitated overnight. And in some ways, it feels like the design meant that the people who were on the control arm were at much more risk of getting more bedazzling, which we know is deliriogenic. So what were your thoughts about that? That's right. And I think, you know, you, you point out a, another important issue. You know, if you're if, if unintentionally you bias the control population toward having something that's more deliriogenic and you find more benefit in the intervention population, it may not be the intervention. And I think that, that was something that was raised and discussed. It was um, a decision that was made with the protocol and, and how it happened. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the dexmedetomidine dose wasn't very high. It was 0.36 mics per kilo per hour um, in the uh, intervention group. But that being said, your, your point is right. And I think I think that it's another reason to uh, take caution to, in generalizing the, the finding that, that the dexmedetomidine in a broad group of patients would, uh, would prevent delirium. Yeah. And I, I think that's just an interesting part of all the studies around dexmedetomidine is like, I think it, it may be that it spares other drugs, which it could be beneficial in and of itself, as opposed to that it treats delirium. Do you know what I mean? That distinction? Exactly. And I, that's why, you know, I think, you know, on the podcast, we had Tim Gerard on as well. We, we talked about this for a bit. You know, I will uh, disclose, I, I, you know, I, I have not, my sleep training, I have not put into practice. So I 
certainly cannot speak to this with the expertise of John. But, you know, the question to me is, is the sleep quality in someone with a benzo compared to somebody who's um, on the dexmedetomidine different? And if you can minimize the use of the benzos, then that's going to reduce delirium. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a, a, a logical way to look at it. And I think it's not easy to sort of figure out how to do polysomnography and pay for that in the context of these studies. But I think that would be a really important thing to figure this out, um, you know, try to unpack this, because I, I think your point is right. It may just be minimizing deliriogenic drugs. Mm-hmm. Well, Trish, I want to move on to another critical care podcast, which I was very entertained by. I will disclose. <laughs> and uh and you, because you had a fascinating discussion with two of the giants of, of ARDS, Luciano Gattinoni and Taylor Thompson. And it was really, you know, talking about um, defining and characterizing, you know, there's a theme certainly to this podcast, but subsets of ARDS. Um, and so uh, you talked a lot uh, about a lot of interesting things. And, you know, it's a hot area, phenotypes, uh, subphenotypes of ARDS. So what were the, some of the more interesting aspects of the discussion for you? Yeah. So um, as you alluded to, Nathan, um, it was probably my most entertaining podcast for me. I think I even said during the podcast that I <laughs> laughed more during that podcast than uh, I had in any others. And uh, Dr. Gattinoni has a relatively heavy French accent. So for those of you who haven't listened to the podcast, you may have to really focus, but it's totally worth listening to because I thought what was actually the most interesting thing was the the history of thinking about and studying ARDS that uh, Luciano and Taylor brought to the conversation. And they kept waxing philosophical on their life experiences in ARDS, which I thought was really very interesting to listen to. The, the paper that we were supposedly talking about looked at um, using a PF of 150 as a threshold to to divide moderate uh, air, patients with moderate ARDS into two different categories to say those with what we would call moderate severe or the lower um, PFs have maybe a different outcome, have a different phenotype and potentially should be treated differently. And maybe this has implications in how we should study ARDS moving forward, which was a lot of what we talked about. Um, they looked at some patients and, and whether or not they got ECMO and they all kind of fell into this category and whatnot. And then Taylor kind of brought to the table, he, you know, he had written an editorial and I, what I would say is as an editorialist, he was much more um, in agreement with uh, Luciano than he was disagreeing. They were agreeing about many, many things as we chatted, but in the editorial that he wrote, he talked a little bit more about using the Carolyn Calfi kind of inflammatory uh model of severity of ARDS or phenotyping of ARDS. And maybe that's the way to look at patients. And I think they both brought to the conversation, the perspective of people who've been involved in trials for ARDS for years and years, and trying to figure out the kind of right cohort of patients to study so that we have more insights into how best to care for these patients. Yeah, and I, I thought that was really interesting. And for, for our listeners who don't know about you know the, the hyperinflammatory um, subphenotypes, if you could get a, a few biomarkers and serum bicarbonate, for example, may differentiate people. And I thought it was really interesting because obviously Dr. Gattinoni's life's work has been looking at this imaging, figuring out the physiology and really feels that that 
you know, in, in those European trials, the, the proning trial, they use a PDF of 150, I believe, as the entry for the neuromuscular blockade. And so that's different. And, and I, I know you talked to them about that 150 and, and Dr. Thompson had some views in terms of if that's even uh, useful from the when looking at it from as opposed to the physiologic side, the hyperinflammatory side. Yeah. I mean, I think that neither of them thought that anything was perfect. I think that was the long, the long and short of it was that um, neither thought these were ideal. And, and just to take a step back, one of the more interesting parts of the conversation for me was, you know, they were both at the table for the Berlin definition of ARDS. And I think a lot of these topics came up when people were talking about how to classify ARDS in the new definition. And it was clear that there were people who were believers in different aspects of how to, to categorize it. As you said, I think uh, Luciano has always been more focused on the physiology and slash imaging on CT scan. Um, and I don't think that Taylor isn't focused on that. I think he was trying to broaden the way we think about it and say, well, sometimes the gas exchange threshold of 150 doesn't help us predict who's going to do better or worse. And thus, maybe we need a combination of different parameters to best phenotypically categorize what, as we all know, is a cohort of patients who fit into a quote unquote syndrome and are clearly different in, 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 in how they behave. Now, the interesting thing to me was, despite having that whole conversation, I think on the one hand, they were like, but everybody should still get lung protective ventilation, six mLs per kilo, yada, yada. Um, and then at the very end, uh, Luciano was like, but every patient's an individual, so you have to take care of your patient as an individual. So it was it was interesting to hear kind of them reflect on how these different phenotypes could be used to, to study this further, how these different phenotypes may or may not help us figure out how to take care of an individual patient. Um, and where they think we should go in the future. Yeah, it all comes back you know, to bundle bundle the care, but individualize it for your individual patient. That becomes a theme <laughs> during our discussion today. <laughs> yeah, I tried to get I tried to get Taylor to say that um, if a patient's PF was like two ninety, that you didn't need to do everything under the sun for them uh, to call them ARDS because they were phenotypically different. And then he was like. Nope, yeah. I still think you should do all those things. And so it was it was just an interesting, interesting conversation. Um, it was Luciano who said every patient's an individual. Yeah. And so I think we need to individualize what we do for for each one. Um, and I and I think what was perhaps most interesting is they both had distinct opinions in their papers. So, you know, you would look at the the main paper that was published about this threshold and you'd think that the argument from the author of that would be like, we should use a PF of 150. And I would say Taylor's editorial was like, we should use this hyperinflammatory phenotyping. But when you actually talk to them, they were, they were much more, this is gray. It should be a combination of things. We still don't fully understand it. And it was much less black and white. And I thought that was really interesting. And, and one of the benefits of having a conversation beyond the articles. I think that's a great point. I think that that's what I like about the podcasts. Uh, you know, we can we can take a deeper dive, you know, and I think in general, when you speak to people and even if their editorial has some disagreement, you can see that there's probably more common ground and then there's area of scientific debate where the data is not clear. And I think uh, I, those are some of the best uh, talks I've enjoyed. And I certainly enjoyed it when you did it with uh, with Taylor and, uh, and Dr. Gattinoni. That was that was great. 
Well, I, I want to uh, thank you both. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, this has been one of my favorite talks of the year. We've done this now two years in a row, and I hope this will be an annual tradition. Uh, and, and I also want to thank you guys for take, talking to our listeners and taking them through some really important articles and topics in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine all year. So to our listeners, uh, on behalf of Trish and John, I'd like to thank you for listening. And if you're interested, please subscribe to the Out of the Blue podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Nathan Seam on behalf of Trish Critic and John Fleetham for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for listening.